Wow, what a great day. I, I don't think I've ever been more excited about what God is doing. And it's not all things that I can see, that I can point to and be like, look at that, look at that. But it's definitely what I can feel. I can feel it in my spirit. There's a stirring in my spirit that I have not felt before. It seems familiar. I've felt things like it, but this is new. This is different. And I'm, I am so excited for what God is doing and what is about to come. Last week, uh, Shelby spoke on spiritual warfare, highlighting to us that not only is following Jesus not a game, right? That's, the, that's the, the title of our series, This Is Not a Game, but it's also a war because we have a very real enemy that really hates us. He's trying to steal, to kill, and destroy us. See, we, we will and we do encounter resistance from you know, the demonic forces and the, and the, and the powers of, of darkness that come against us, that are trying to prevent us as individuals from fulfilling our God-given destinies. They're trying to prevent us to collectively from advancing the kingdom of God on the earth and making earth look like heaven, right? That's the, that's the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven to make earth look like heaven. The demonic is, is trying to block us from seeing the lost, our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, come to salvation and be discipled as true followers of Jesus. So we engage in this spiritual warfare as we encounter the battle. But what we don't do, as Shelby highlighted and talked about last week, is we don't go demon hunting. We're not looking for demons behind every tree and under every bush and behind every chair. We know that they are there, but if we focus, and if that's what we're doing, then, then, what, then the enemy has us. Because we're just focused on him when we should be focused on Jesus. See, we keep our eyes on Jesus, and when the battle happens, and when, when, the, when the demonic rears its ugly head, so to speak, we deal with it, we engage, but we always keep our eyes on Jesus. I know that... Um, today I want to share with you something that the Holy Spirit provoked in me recently. And my hope is as I, is really what, I think I was, I was telling somebody this, this week, I, I, I think, so I'm just going to imagine that I have a really long stick, and I'm just going to poke you. I'm just going to poke you with this long stick, you know? You know, they say, don't poke the bear. Uh, today, I'm just going to stand here, I'm going to poke the bear a little bit. I want to provoke you. I want to, I want to, I want to almost, almost agitate you, but in, a, but in a good way. I'm not looking just to irritate you, but I, I want to, I want to provoke you. I want to poke you with a stick, so to speak. My spiritual Holy Ghost stick, I'm going to poke at you a little bit today. I know the messages that we've been sharing in this series, they've been tough. I get that. They've been challenging. They've caused us to honestly look at our lives and, and assess our lives and take stock of like what, like literally, what are we doing? What are our priorities? Where are we going? What are we building our lives with, right? A couple weeks ago, Renee spoke that message about wood, hay, and stubble. And she was like, that was powerful. That was, that was, that was a strong word. And this, so these messages have been challenging to us. But, but what I believe in this is I believe that the Holy Spirit is preparing us for what He desires to bring us into. See, when Jesus desires to bring us into something new, it requires a response on our part. 
And that's what these messages have been doing. They've been, they've been designed, and I believe by the Holy Spirit. It's not, our, not in, you know, in our mind how we've crafted this, but, but what Holy Spirit has laid out this plan is to, to elicit a response from us so that he can take us into something new. And some of the responses that we've talked about are a greater commitment to prayer and worship and the Word. A passion to be consumed by Jesus. We've looked at it and examining our character and our integrity, stirring up desperation for Jesus, and then wearing the full armor of God. But today, today I want to talk to you, and I, my, my hope is to elicit a response of violence from us. I want to talk to you today about violence. We in, I'll, I'll just, I'll say the Western church or in North America, we have domesticated the gospel we have domesticated Jesus and the cross. See, we see Jesus more as the gentle man riding on a donkey and less as the one who violently overturned tables because people were misrepresenting the Father and His Father's house. We look at Jesus and we see the suffering servant and less the conquering King of Kings who's returning for His bride. We see Jesus more as the lamb who was slain and we miss out on the lion who was wild and untamed. Many, many, many years ago, we were newly married. I heard a prophetic word from a, a prophetess whose name is Stacy Campbell. And she, she, she spoke a, a prophecy that relates to, to what I'm talking about. And she prophesied about the pretty whitewashed crosses that we have on top of our churches and inside our buildings and how they misrepresent the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus wasn't a pretty white cross. The cross of Jesus was rugged. It was cruel. It was bloody. It was an instrument of death. See, what took place on the cross was violent. It was violent to Jesus, but it was also a violent act of grace, of mercy, and of love on our behalf. See, how, how we perceive Jesus influences how we pursue him. And so oftentimes what I'm seeing, what I'm noticing, what Holy Spirit is, is, has made, made me aware of is that we pursue him gently and we pursue him casually because we view him as meek and mild and gentle. He's the good shepherd. He's the embodiment of love, of grace, of kindness, of acceptance. And it's nice. You know, the, 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 that's nice. I like to see Jesus like that. Right? He, he welcomes me in, arms wide open. He's the good shepherd. He's guiding me. He's leading me. Man, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. But it also lacks the passion, the hunger, and the fire that he has for you. See, we simply cannot stay with the parts of Jesus that we're just comfortable with. We don't get to pick and choose the aspects and the elements of Jesus that we like and that we want to interact with. Because you get both the lion and the lamb. Right? You get both the lover and his jealousy. The suffering servant and the absolute rule and reign of the king. Because it's his dominion. It's his domain. And where the king rules and reigns, he has absolute dominion. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, it says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous, impassioned God demanding what is rightfully and uniquely His. 
How many times when you, when you remind yourselves of the, name of the names of God, there's many names of God that are given to us in the Scripture, do we remind ourselves that His name is Jealous. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for me. He's jealous for his people. He is passionate for us. And he demands what is rightfully and uniquely his. What exactly is rightfully and uniquely his? We are. It's us. He wants us. He wants all of us. Every part of us. No divided interests. You know, can I, can I say this? Jesus doesn't like to share. He shares his food, sure, but he doesn't like to share you. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want you to have divided interests where you give half of your heart over here and half of your heart over there. Like, isn't it? Like, remember, Jesus is the one who said, if you love mother, father more than me, you cannot be my disciple. He wants what he paid for on the cross. He wants his people. And he wants his people, us, he wants us to receive the inheritance that he purchased for us on the cross. Not one day off in the future, maybe when, we, when this life is over, we step into the kingdom of God in heaven, that we receive our full inheritance there. Yes, there too, but here and now. Jesus didn't just die for us so that we could step into eternity. He died for us so we have an inheritance now, today, in this moment. He wants us to receive what he paid for. See, the passion that God has for his people is meant to be reciprocated back to him by his people. We are to be people that aggressively and at times jealously and yes, violently pursue Jesus and his kingdom. There's, a, there's an interesting kind of a strange statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12. He says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, heaven suffers violence, violent assault, and violent men seize it by force as a precious prize. It's a little strange, but it's also really powerful. See, Jesus is saying that, that, that there are people that are, that are using force. That's what, that's what, this, that's what violence means in this, in this case. It's to use force or to apply force. He's saying that people are forcefully taking hold of the kingdom and they are forcefully entering their way into the kingdom and they are forcefully advancing the kingdom on the earth by force, by violence. Biblical commentator Matthew Henry writes, he says it this way, a share in the heavenly kingdom is sought for with the most ardent zeal and the most intense exertion. When's the last time you would look at your life and characterize your pursuit of the kingdom of God, your pursuit of Jesus as that's the most ardent zeal, that's the most intense exertion? See, when there is revelation and realization of the price and the value of the kingdom of God, people will aggressively pursue to take hold of Jesus and to secure his, him and his kingdom. We cannot allow familiarity with Jesus to cause us to grow calloused to his worth. We have to remind ourselves that he is priceless and matchless in every way. You cannot put a price on Jesus. See, when we keep the pricelessness and the beauty of Jesus in front of us, it helps fuel that passion, that hunger, and that fire inside of us for him. Like if... if if I told you that in the VIP room, and now like chances, how many people know where the VIP room is? 
That's what I thought. So you would have the advantage to what I'm about to say. If I told you in the VIP room of our church, there is a million-dollar cash prize, and all, it's, all you had to do is get it first, how passionately, how zealously, how ruthlessly would you be chasing and wondering, where's the VIP room? And then you, you, you take notice, uh, there were a few people who raised their hands, and when they started to move, you were following them. Because your goal is, right before they get to the door, you trip them. Boom! So you get in there first. Don't, 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 like, listen, we're not going to pretend to be super religious here. Really, if there was a million dollars cash in there, and I said, whoever gets it, it's yours, it'd be pandemonium in here. There would be blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> like, Jesus is infinitely more valuable than any treasure. I'd like to suggest to us today that the Father is looking for us to be the violent ones, taking hold of his kingdom and advancing it on the earth. See, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, was established through a violent act that sparked violent reactions and elicits a violent response from us. What I mean by this is, is Jesus' death on the cross was a violent act. It was a violent act that the enemy believed that he was derailing and destroying Jesus and God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. He believed he was orchestrating that in Jesus' death on the cross. See, but what God used, what the enemy planned as violence against God, he turned it into violence for the kingdom. See, it's through the violent death and the resurrection of Jesus that we actually even enter into the kingdom of God. These are the last words that Jesus spoke as he gave up his life. He said, it is finished. And then in Matthew 27, verse 50 to 53, it says this. Jesus passionately cried out, took his last breath, gave up his spirit, at that moment, the veil of the holies of holies was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook violently. Rocks were violently split apart and graves were opened. Then many of the holy ones who had died were brought back to life and came out of their graves. Jesus breathed his last and the veil was torn. Top to bottom. This was huge and thick like it's it wasn't possible for for man to tear it but it was significant top to bottom god was destroying the thing that kept him and his people apart there was a violent earthquake can you imagine standing there watching jesus cry out breathe his last and then suddenly the entire earth begins to shake violently so violently that rocks are splitting apart And then saints are spontaneously resurrected as graves just open. These are violent signs that marked a significant event in humanity. See, there, there are moments where God violently breaks through from the kingdom of heaven into the, the, our, our earthly natural realm. I want to talk about a few of these, these instances Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the earth and all the disciples were baptized in the Spirit and started speaking in tongues, it says that there was the sound of a rushing, violent wind heard in that room. 
And that flames of fire begin to, to rest upon all of their heads and then they begin to speak in other tongues. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John are arrested for healing the paralyzed man at the gate called Beautiful, they were arrested, thrown in prison, then they were threatened and were not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. So they left and where did they go? They went to a prayer meeting. And it says, when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. God grabbed hold of that building where they were gathered and he began to shake the building and release the Holy Spirit over the people who were gathered there, crying out to him. And they were filled again. It's important to, to, to catch that. They were filled again. These are the same people two chapters earlier in Acts chapter 2 that were filled for the very first time with the Holy Spirit. And it says in this instance, they were filled again. If you've only been filled once, it's time for you to be filled again. I'm believing, I've been praying all week long that God would not only shake our building, but would begin to shake us and shake us violently and that we would be filled again. It's time to be filled again. There was this, it was a violent response from the kingdom of heaven to earth. In Acts chapter 16, after casting a demon out of a girl, a slave girl that was following them around, uh, the, the, sometimes the demonic makes no sense. This little girl, slave girl that was, was, was being sold essentially to tell fortunes and she was a kind of like a carnival act and she was making money for her people, was following Paul and, and Silas around saying, listen to these guys. They know the kingdom of heaven. Listen to these guys. Listen. And for like days on end. And like finally Paul is like at his wit's end and he turns around and he just snaps. He turns around and says, come out! And the, and the demon came out of the girl. And the, now her owners are very upset because she can no longer, you know, do the tricks and make them money. And so Paul and Silas are, are, are arrested. They're grabbed, right? And they are stripped of their clothes and they're beaten with rods. And then they're thrown in, in prison and they're, 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 it says that they're, they're put in, um, in, in stocks. And this isn't, it's not a way to just simply restrain them, but this is a form of torture. So not only were they stripped naked and beaten with rods on their body, but now they're, they're in the inner prison in stocks. They're being slowly tortured. And they were praying and worshiping through the night. And it says that around midnight, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so powerful that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. It's not just a, uh, you know, uh, that's just a, a coincidence earthquake because chains don't become unfastened when the, when the, when in an earthquake. I've been through a few earthquakes. I'm sure we all have. And the chains just don't like... I've never heard reports of handcuffs just popping off in the middle of, a, of, of an earthquake. This wasn't just an earthquake. The NIV says that it was a, that, that, that violently, the earthquake violently shook the building. Heaven responded with this powerful shaking. It was an intervention with a show of power and force that set not only Paul and Silas free, but all the prisoners free. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the nation of Israel had turned their backs on the Lord. And King Ahab and his queen Jezebel had torn down the altars of God, had killed the prophets of the Lord, and led the people into the worship of demonic idols. 
And Elijah stands alone and challenges the demonic prophets of Baal to a confrontation to determine who the one true God is. And he says, this is what we're going to do. We'll each build altars, prepare a sacrifice, and then we will pray and ask, uh, ask for fire to fall from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And the God that answers by fire, that's the one true God. And so Elijah, very gentlemanly man, very polite, he allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. And it was like all day long, from morning till afternoon, they're chanting, they're running around. It actually says that they start cutting themselves with swords and their, their blood is flowing out of their body, trying to get their, their idol to rain fire down. And then Paul says, okay, I've had enough. And it says that he rebuilt the altar. Remember that. That's important. He rebuilt the altar of the Lord. He prepared the sacrifice. He laid it on the altar. And then it says, and then he prayed. And when he prayed, fire fell. And it didn't just light the wood, but fire fell and it consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It consumed the stones. And oh, they took water and they doused everything in water. There was a trench of water all around. And it, 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 if you read it, it says that it licked up all the dust and the water. Fire fell. It was so intense. And then Elijah ordered that the 450 prophets of Baal were to be killed. And that one violent act from heaven, fire falling, was a catalyst for an entire nation to be turned back to God. These are just a few examples of times when God violently stepped into the natural realm, our earthly circumstances, and released the power of his kingdom. See, there is, a, there is an aspect of strength and of power and of violence to God that we cannot ignore. And I believe that he is calling us in this time, today. He's calling us to engage with him in this realm of spiritual violence. But listen, hear me clearly, because in our day and age, this is important that you do not miss this. I am not talking about natural physical violence. That is not what I'm talking about. Of every example that I read, not once, before the, outside of Elijah, they killed 450, but that was a different time. right? But that was after fire fell. But none of the other times was a finger lifted in violence or strength against the enemy. I'm not talking a physical violence. I'm talking a spiritual, supernatural engaging of God in a violent way. We are in and we are entering into a time where our culture and the people that we are surrounded by are increasingly anti-Christ. We are facing times where demonic powers will force us into positions of conflict where we must respond accordingly in the Spirit. Most of the examples I gave of the violent responses from, from heaven were in situations where there was persecution, where there was threats, and where there was intimidation from the enemy. Take notice of the responses that precede heaven's actions. We need to pay attention that when heaven breaks through and acts, what was taking place? When, when, when heaven breaks through and there's a, there's, a, there's a violent response from heaven, what, what precipitated that? In the upper room, they were praying. They were worshiping. And it says they were together in one mind and in one purpose. It says, and then Holy Spirit came. 
Peter and John responded to the threats, not with outrage, not with public demonstrations and marches through the, through the streets and banners and were protesting. No, no, no. They were threatened with their lives. I mean, these are the same people that had just crucified Jesus. I mean, they meant business. When they said, stop talking about Jesus, they were not messing around. They left there and they went to the inner room. They went to pray. They went to a prayer meeting, not a demonstration. And they prayed. And you know what they did? They didn't pray and ask God to get them. God, get them for what they said to me and how they're restricting me. Uh-uh. They prayed. They said, Jesus, give us boldness and give us courage to keep declaring your name. They prayed for themselves, for courage and for boldness. And that's when the building started to shake. Paul and Silas, I mean... Would anybody have blamed them if they sat in the prison cell, their feet locked in stocks, their, their bruised, busted, disgusted, in pain, if they just sat and complained just a little bit? They freed the little girl. But they weren't sitting there whining. They weren't complaining. They were worshiping. They were praying. And then the building shook. Elijah, who stood alone, alone, on the mountaintop, he stood by himself while the people watched. 450 demonic prophets of Baal watching. And he stood alone. And I said, remember this, he rebuilt the altar of the Lord. It was already there. He went back to their roots and he rebuilt the altar of the Lord. And the altar in that day, at that time, that was worship. That's how they worshiped. He rebuilt the place of worship. He prepared the sacrifice. He laid it on the wood. He worshiped and then he stepped back and he prayed. He worshiped and he prayed. All these people responded to difficult, against all odds situations with prayer and worship. And they were persecuted, not just verbally persecuted. They didn't just get called names. They, didn't, weren't, they, they weren't just canceled on social media. They were really persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and they responded with prayer and worship. If we want a violent outbreak from heaven, to earth in our day and age, then we must respond with everything going on around us in culture in our, and in our own personal lives with prayer and worship. And it's not God, go get them. It's our eyes are on you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are holy, the most holy. You are worthy, the most worthy. That is the first and most important response to our current antichrist, persecutory, demonic powers at work in our culture. I'm not saying that's the only thing we do, but that is the most important, and it is the first thing that we do. Because if you're responding in any other way and you not, have not spent time in prayer and in worship, then you are out of alignment with what God has for you to do. Even if you're following the current Christian crowd and everything that they're doing, that might not be what God's asking you to do. We respond first with prayer and worship. Because prayer and worship is not a passive action. Prayer and worship is aggression in the spirit realm. 
This is how we fight our battles. Theologian Karl Barth said this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. It's time for an uprising. And it starts when we bend our knees in prayer and in worship. Make no mistake, prayer is violent and prayer is aggressive, even when prayer is silent. It doesn't have to be loud and screaming to be aggressive and violent. That's not how your authority works. The loudest person does not have the most authority. I listened to a sermon from Chris Vallotton that he had given on December the 21st of last year, so just only a couple months ago. And in it, at the end, he read a prophetic declaration that as I was listening to it, I heard it and I knew in that moment, before he finished it, I knew I had to share it here and I had to, I had to release that same declaration here. Now, I took it and I've modified it so that it fits us because there were some elements that were very specific to his church, but I want to, this is how I want to end today. I want to I release this prophetic declaration over us. Like Elijah, we must prepare our altar of worship in a way that leads to a massive global reformation. We must move forward in the Spirit and take ground in the Lord, and we must find a higher and deeper place in Jesus. It's incumbent upon us to go where no one has ever gone before in God, to push past the temptation to settle in a spiritual land that has been left to us by our forefathers. It's essential that we press deeper into the heart of God and take new territory in the Spirit to discover what it means to see the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our vision must be greater than large gatherings and full services because our forefathers walked on water, witnessed shadow healings and handkerchief deliverances. They turned nations upside down and witnessed entire Greek and Roman cities steeped in witchcraft and false religion turned to Jesus. The Jesus People movement of the 70s saw hundreds and thousands of hippies come to Christ and it grew so large that the only baptismal tank that could hold them was the ocean. Today we need more than a movement. We need a Holy Ghost reformation that drives evil out of our nations, turns our schools and our universities back into educational organizations based in truth, that delivers our children from the indoctrinational camps posing as educational institutions. We need a move of God so powerful that it breaks the back of lawlessness so that fathers return to the family farm and wait patiently in their field of dreams for their sons to leave the pig farms of sexual perversion and return to a healthy home. Jesus healed everyone that came to him and he proclaimed, greater works will you do when I go to be with the Father. I want to see the fruit of a generation that actually experiences the greater works and doesn't just talk about them. I'm not satisfied seeing prophetic speech talks taunt me. I want to live to see the tangible glory of the Lord rise in this present darkness in a way that attracts kings and queens, paupers and the poor, prostitutes and pimps to the church of Jesus Christ. I want angels to frequent our ministry so often that we mistake them for our closest friends. I don't want angels just hanging out in our sanctuaries. I don't want to see them unemployed. I want us 
to employ them by, by faith-filled prayers. I want our faith to build strategic alliances with these heavenly allies, and I want them to help us save our cities, to apprehend drug pushers and school shooters. I want them to cut through the iron bars that are holding revivalists and reformers out of the places of promise and power so the Nebuchadnezzars of this world can encounter the living God, and we can make disciples of all, of all nations. There is more. There is more, and I intend to leave an inheritance to my children's children's children, a world in revival. Therefore, we must leave the cesspool of virtuous living and find the promised land of our fulfillment of 2,000 years of praying on earth as it is in heaven. There is a stirring that is taking place. And it's not just here. And in times and in messages and in services like this. It's in the ones and the twos. Because I have people reaching out to me asking, can I come? I want to pray for our students on Wednesday mornings. I'm, I'm sparked, I'm encouraged by what's taking place at that university, and I want to come and I want to pray for our students. There is a stirring taking place because as I talk to some of you, you're telling me of times that the Lord has, has drawn you into prayer, that's drawn you into the secret place. Something is happening. And we can sit back and just idly watch it walk by and happen, or we can engage Jesus said these really convicting words about the religious people in his day. Right after the triumphant entry, he was weeping over Jerusalem and he said, you missed the day of your visitation because you were not aware. Family, I will not miss the day of our visitation because we are not aware of what God is doing and because I don't agree with what it looks like or sounds like. I don't care what it looks like or sounds like. And I will not look to what's happening in other places and just try and cookie cutter replicate that here. But there is something that's happening. This is, this is how I want to end and ask us to stand. Staff, we've got a, a playlist in, in, uh, in iTunes, and it's just, I think it's just called Prayer. Um, can you just hit shuffle on that? Prayer room is open. I know that's, that's about all I feel like to say. The prayer room is open. If you want to respond, this is our prayer room. And it's now open. <laughs>